Welcome back to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Welcome back, everybody. Today's podcast is a little bit different. I will not be here Monday due to a family commitment. So we left off on Friday before break with the Republican Party. So we're going to finish the calls of the Civil War and get into the differences during the Civil War. And then maybe even actually get to the beginning of the Civil War itself proper. Today's podcast will cover from Dred Scott up until the beginning of the Civil War. So let's pick up with Dred Scott where we left off before break. Dred Scott versus Sanford is a landmark Supreme Court case. It was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1857, and it is supposed to be the final answer on the question of if slavery will expand west, yes or no. Dred Scott was a black man. He was a slave for most of his life. His owner was a doctor, and he moved around a lot. And for long stretches of his life, almost 20 years, Dred Scott lived in free territory and a free state. So after his owner dies, he sues for his freedom. And he claims that since he lived in an area where slavery was outlawed, by definition, according to the Constitution, he should be a free man. So that case makes its way through the courts in the 1850s while the United States is deciding whether or not slavery will expand west, yes or no. And remember, it's kind of tearing the country apart. And finally, it gets to the Supreme Court in 1857. Chief Justice at the time was a gentleman by the name of Roger B. Taney, and he writes the opinion of the court. And basically what they ruled, they ruled against Dred Scott, and they said not only is he not a free man, they didn't really answer that question. If, if a slave lives in free territory, free property, does it make you a free man? They just kind of sidestepped that question. But what the Supreme Court did under Roger B. Taney was rage larger questions. And what they said was that all black people, whether free or enslaved, does not matter, are not citizens of the United States, according to the Constitution. The Supreme Court, under Chief Justice Roger B. Taney in 1857, on the eve of the Civil War, ruled that all black people are not citizens of the United States and therefore have no constitutional rights. Secondly, they went a step further and said slaves are actually not people by the Constitution. They are technically property. If you're looking at Dred Scott, Dred Scott is the Supreme Court's chance to weigh in on the expansion of slavery. And according to Dred Scott, slavery can expand out west because no government, a federal government, a state government, a local government, can take your property away from you without due process of law. So therefore, any laws out west banning the expansion of slavery become illegal overnight or overturned by the Supreme Court. So Dred Scott is supposed to answer this question of will slavery expand west, yes or no? And the answer is the definitive yes. Instead of answering the question, what it really does is pour gasoline on the fire. A rift has already developed between the North and South when it comes to labor systems, when it comes to economics, now the expansion of this, and this, instead of answering that question, just further intensifies it. The South views Dred Scott as vindication of the quote-unquote Southern way of life, that slavery can expand West, and that we were right for the last 80 years, and you nosy Northerners, you abolitionists in the North, mind your own business. That's the way the South views it. The North, stop me, and this sounds familiar, Mr. Jackson, the North says uh, many areas, because there's no place to appeal the Supreme Court. It's Supreme means highest. It's the highest court. There's no other court higher. So many of the states in the North get together and start talking about nullifying or nullification of the Dred Scott rule. Sound familiar? South Carolina nullification crisis over tariffs during Jackson's administration 30 years ago. So instead of answering this question, 
what Dred Scott really does is just further divides the North and South and pours gasoline on an already enraging fire. The question remains unanswered. So we've heard at this point, we've heard from presidents, we've heard from Congress, we've heard from the people, we've heard from states. Now we've heard from the Supreme Court, but the question still is an open question. It's not settled. Will slavery expand West, yes or no? So the last group to hear from is vigilantes. In other words, if you want something done, do it yourself. And that brings us to John Brown's raid. This is the eve of the Civil War, 1859. Uh, John Brown is from Virginia. He is an extreme abolitionist. He is anti-slavery. And his raid at Harper's Ferry, the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, today West Virginia, it was his attempt to end the institution of slavery. John Brown and about 20 of his accomplices, about five of them are his own sons, the rest are his friends, and a few free blacks. And what they do is they go to Harper's Ferry, which is not far from D.C., where the federal arsenal is, and at the federal arsenal is where they keep weapons for the U.S. government. And this is about as far north as you can go almost and still be in slave territory. You go any further, you're in Maryland, and then Pennsylvania's free territory. Basically, what his attempt is, this is one man's attempt to overturn the institution of slavery by himself, starting at the top and working his way all the way down, and hopefully going to spread a slave revolution that goes literally town to town, hamlet to hamlet, and end the institution or overturn slavery throughout the South. The plan is to sack the federal arsenal, to attack it, take it over, and then send word around to the plantations around Harper's Ferry that now's the time for slaves to rise up. Hopefully the slaves will come join them, they'll have plenty of weapons, and they will literally leave Harper's Ferry, go plantation to plantation, overturn slavery. So how does it go? Well, the first part goes swimmingly well. They have no problem taking the federal arsenal, which is basically like a military base today. This should surprise you if it doesn't. If 20 people with guns can roll up to Fort Benning or Fort Bragg or any military base and take over the whole base today, that would be alarming. The reason they're able to do this so easily, this is 1859, and the United States is about 80 years old at this point, and never has the federal arsenal ever been attacked. So I wouldn't suggest doing this with your friends. It will probably end poorly for you. But since it's never been done before, the arsenal at Harper's Ferry is very lightly defended, just a few guys on duty, and they give it up pretty much without a fight. So the first part is no problem. John Brown and his men sack the arsenal, and they got plenty of weapons. And then they send word out to the plantations that now is the time to rise up. Here's where the problem set in. There's never been a slave rebellion that turns into a revolution, if you remember what that means. So therefore, hardly zero slaves join them. Many people around Harper's Ferry, slaves, may not like being a slave, but they don't want to necessarily die today. And this has never worked before, and they think it's, they appreciate his efforts, but see it as foolhardy. So therefore, uh, the first people who do show up are not the slaves, but the slave owners. So when word spreads that there's a rebellion in Harper's Ferry, within minutes, you've got John Brown and his men inside the arsenal, and they are surrounded by slave owners with weapons, and there's kind of a standoff. And then Colonel Robert E. Lee shows up. The same guy who goes on to be general of the Confederate Army. At this point, he is a 30-year military veteran in the U.S. Army. And he is there leading the U.S. Army against John Brown and his men. There's a gun battle. A handful of people are killed. The rest, including John Brown, are captured. This is in October of 59. They're put on trial for treason, found guilty, and executed the first week of December of 1859, about six weeks later. So John Brown's raid was a failed attempt 
to overthrow the institution of slavery in the United States, and it's right on the eve of the Civil War. Really, the point of this is this just kind of shows that we've heard from all branches of government at the federal branch, all three branches. We've heard from the presidents, several presidents. We've heard from Congress. We've heard from the Supreme Court. We've heard from state governments. We've heard from the people. This question of will slavery expand West, yes or no, remains unanswered. And this is kind of a last-ditch attempt for one man, a vigilante justice, to do it himself, and it fails. They don't know it at the time, but they're on the eve of the Civil War. You've got this powder keg that's lit. All you need is a trigger or an explosion to ignite it. And that trigger is Lincoln's election. So Lincoln is elected in 1860, November of 1860, with a northern majority. Lincoln carries no southern states, and that's mainly because his name's not on the ballot in the South. And what's so offensive about Lincoln is that he's a big R Republican. I mean, a member of the GOP, the Grand Old Republican Party, that was formed six years earlier to end the institution of slavery. John C. Fremont is the first Republican candidate ever in 1856, and he loses to James Buchanan. So Lincoln is only the second Republican nominee ever, and he's the first one to win. And he wins with a northern majority. The reason the South decides to leave after his election is because he is a Republican, and I mean big R Republican. Um, the Republican Party, if you remember, was formed with one plank, and that plank was, was eventually abolition to outlaw slavery in the United States. What Lincoln's stance was when he got elected, here's his stance on the issue of expansion of slavery. Lincoln says, I will not allow slavery to expand west if elected. So an election for Lincoln, he says, I'm going to answer the slave question. The answer is no. Slavery will not expand out west, anywhere out west. North or south doesn't matter. But he also says, I will not touch it where it already exists. In other words, the south can keep their slaves in 1860 and 61 if Lincoln's elected. So why does the south secede? Because right now, up to this point, 1860, since the beginning of our government, it's been divided along north and south. When it comes to the issue of slavery, and it's been even. If you remember, there's been several compromises. Uh, the Great Compromise settles how they're going to put people in Congress, in the House, in the Senate. And then Three-Fifths Compromise says the South can count 60% of their slaves because that keeps the balance of power between North and South the same, so neither side can dictate. Missouri comes along in 1820, and the compromise there is reached to... to allow Missouri as a slave, Maine as a free state, keeps the balance there, and hopefully draw a line through the sand going forward. Remember, these compromises have been worked out before. So here's what the South knows. It doesn't matter what Mr. Lincoln says in 1860, that if slavery is not allowed to expand west, all that new territory that was acquired, Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase, that was acquired uh, through the annexation of Texas, that was required through the Mexican Cession, that was acquired through the treaty with Britain to settle the Oregon Territory dispute, all that territory will one day be states, and they know it, and several states. So if slavery is not allowed to expand in 1860, according to Lincoln, what that means for the South is all those states' uh, territory out West will become new states, and they all become free states. So they simply don't care what Mr. Lincoln says about the institution of slavery, about not coming after slavery in Georgia, South Carolina, because in the future, 1870, 1880, 1890, instead of a balance of free and slave states, it's going to be way more free states than slave states. And at that point, the South will be able to do nothing to stop the federal government from ending slavery 
in Georgia or South Carolina. So they simply don't trust the Republican Party and the government moving forward. So Lincoln is elected November of 1860. He is not sworn in until March 4th of 1861. So back then it was a longer. Today it's January 20th. Back then it took more time for him to get his government together. In the meantime, in those five or so months, what happens? South Carolina becomes the first state to secede that December. They formally leave the United States of America, leave the Union. They're quickly followed by six other states, which include North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, all the way out, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. So there's seven states. They get together in February of 1861 at Montgomery, Alabama, and they form a new nation, and they call themselves the Confederate States of America or the Confederacy. Now, if you remember a confederation, if you remember the difference, the Articles of Confederation was America's first constitution. What that is is a different system of government where the states or individual political units have more power than central government. So the confederation that they're forming, the states are ultimately supreme over the federal government, which is the opposite of what the United States is by 1860 is the federal government is now supreme to the state government. So, And, and all this takes place. Jefferson Davis of Mississippi. He was a senator from Mississippi. He's elected president. Alexander Stevens from Georgia, a senator from Georgia, was elected vice president. They were sworn into office in Montgomery, Alabama. All this takes place while Lincoln is still not president of the United States. He's president-elect. If you remember, he's elected in November. He doesn't take office till March 4th. This is February. So that means the 15th president of the United States, James Buchanan, is still president of the United States, and he basically does nothing. He allows these problems to fester and basically let Lincoln solve them when he becomes president. So under Buchanan's watch, seven states leave the Union, and he doesn't do anything to keep them in, basically. When Lincoln formally is inaugurated president of the United States, the United States, which was 33 states, is now 26 states. So Lincoln's first goal when he becomes president of the United States is not to abolish slavery. It's not even to stop the expansion of slavery. Lincoln's very first goal, his only stated goal at the beginning of what comes the Civil War, is to preserve the Union which means keep the Union together. Lincoln, very importantly, sees the Confederacy not as a separate nation. He sees them as states that are just in rebellion, and there's a huge difference. So he never recognizes independency for the Confederate states. He just sees them as states that are in rebellion, and he's not going to let them leave the Union on his watch. That's the way he sees it. So at the beginning of the war, Lincoln's only goal is to keep the Union together or preserve the Union is what he calls it. And the reason for that is slavery is a non-issue if the United States splits. It doesn't matter if, if slavery is allowed to expand west, if it doesn't expand, if slavery is eliminated, if slavery is endorsed forever, if the country ceases to exist. So the first goal is to keep the union together. And this is March 4th. So now let's take a look at some of the differences. You should know the population disparity, the railroad disparity, and the industrial output disparity, which is... 14, 15, and 16, those three disparities. Let's take a look. The first one is population. At this time period, roughly now, about 71% of the U.S. population lives in the north, which means about 29% lives in the south. So you would say that's like a almost three-to-one advantage, but not really, because in the north, 99% of the population is free. Only 1% is slave. In the south, 67% is free, 33% is enslaved. That's a full one-third of Southerners are not free. And here's what I can tell you. At the beginning of the Civil War, no Southerners are enlisting slaves to fight for the Confederacy. Would you give up 
man that, that you've been whipping for most of his life a gun? I don't think so, and neither did they. So that means a third of that 29% population, which is roughly 10%, is not eligible for military use. So, so let's look at the advantage of population. One of the obvious advantages becomes potential pool of soldiers. The, the North simply has a lot more people to draw from. So let's take one of the deadliest battles of the war. Uh, the Battle of Antietam in Sharpsburg, Maryland, is the deadliest single day of the entire war. It's a one-day battle. So let's just look at deaths. In the Union, there was 2,108 people killed at the Battle of Antietam, 2,180. The South, Confederacy, had 1,546 people killed that day. So you combine them up, it's like 3,600 people were killed that day, which is more than 9-11. It's more than D-Day for Americans. It's more than, more than Pearl Harbor. It's still the single deadliest day in U.S. history, September 17, 1862, to this day. So you would think, though, the South lost about 500 less men that day that they have the advantage there. But keep in mind, the North has three and a half times the pool. So if the South loses 1,500 soldiers, 1,500 times three and a half is 5,250. Just to break even, the North would have to lose 5,250 just to break even, and they lost 2,108. So battle after battle, this war of attrition wears the South down, which is why by the time you get to Appomattox, where Lee surrenders, um, to Grant to end the Civil War, he, the, the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's army, is a shell of what it used to be simply because most of his commanders, most of his soldiers, a lot of them are dead and not replaced, whereas the North still has a very large army because they're able to replace their soldiers. Another advantage, a major advantage when it comes to population, is to prepare for war. So if you have more people, not only do you have more soldiers, you have more people doing the work to make more war stuff as well, more production. Now, this is one area where the South did have the population of slaves because the South was using the role of slaves during the Civil War was to help manufacture and make goods and products and the weapons, the food, the uniforms for the South to fight during the Civil War. Okay, so a couple major advantages would come to people, and the North has the advantage there. The next major advantage is when it comes to railroads. Now, to give you just an idea and railroad disparity, at the beginning of the Civil War, um, about 71% of all the rail in the United States is located in the North, which means about 29% is located in the South. Now, as the war goes on, the North continues to build more railroads. In the South, not so much. So what happens in the South, they call them Sherman's necktie by the end of the war. So what happens to a lot of the Southern Railroad as the, the Union armies come through the South, they destroy all lines of communication, which would include bridges, which would include railroads, which would include telegraph lines. And then what they discover is, because the North isn't occupying a lot of these towns, they take them and then move on. So what they discover is the, the Confederates, the Southerners, come back and just rebuild them pretty quickly. The telegraph lines, the railroad lines, the bridges. So what they start doing is they start taking long stretches of rail. And at night, they heat them up on campfires, which makes them malleable, and then they twist them around the tree. And those become known as Sherman's neckties because William Tecumseh Sherman is the guy leading the Western Army at this time period in 64 towards the end of the war when they come through and do a lot of damage through Tennessee, Georgia, and both Carolinas. And those become known as Sherman's neckties. So as the war goes on, not only does the North have a major advantage on rail, 
it also increases as the war goes on because they're building more railroads while the South is not, and the North is destroying a lot of the Southern railroads as well. Now, this is a major advantage when it comes to tactics. You can transport troops. You can transport weapons. You can transport clothing and food, goods, much further, much faster, and easier by rail. So what this means, literally a lot of these battles, like Stonewall Jackson, a very famous Confederate commander, one of Lee's fightness generals, a lot of times his men would march for two or three weeks, arrive that morning, and by that afternoon they were fighting after weeks and weeks of marching, whereas the Union would ride by rail for a couple of days, get off, march for a few hours, and then they were ready to fight. So the Union had a major advantage when it comes to rails, not just with troops, but with supplies as well, transporting goods and troops and supplies long distances. And then the last major advantage here is the industrial output, and this is a massive Union advantage as well. So when it comes to industrial output, about 92% of all the industrial output, that's all the stuff that's being manufactured in the United States, is manufactured in the North, which means about 8% is manufactured in the South at the beginning of the Civil War. So literally what this means for you, if you're in a battle and you're a Confederate soldier, for every single shot you fire, on average, your opponent, the Union soldier, has nine bullets to your one. So you better shoot straight. It's not an even fight. So the Union can afford to miss. The South really can't. Um, and what normally happens is after the battle was over, if a Confederate soldier, w- once if they won the battle, they would go out and scavenge, and they would take frock coats, they would take sidearms, they would take weapons from u- dead Union soldiers. And what would happen is they would use those guns, but once they ran out of ammunition, those guns were useless to them. They usually just get rid of them because they knew there was no more ammunition coming for those guns. So the industrial output is a major Union advantage. Also, one area you think would be a Southern advantage was not, and that would be food production. You would think since the South has large plantations, slaves, that they would have the advantage when it comes to food, but that would not be correct. If you remember, a lot of the Southern plantations, they do have slaves, they do have large plantations, but a lot of that is cash crops. King cotton by now tobacco, rice, indigo, and those are grown to be sold as exports, not to be used as food. So when it comes to food production at the beginning of the Civil War, the North has twice as much food production as the South does at the beginning of the Civil War. So if you add it all up, more people, more rail, more telegraph lines, more, way more industrial outpour, more food, you would think this would be a short war. This is why the North, the original enlistments of the Civil War were 90 days, three months. Many people thought the war would be over very quickly because of the major Union advantages. And as we know now, it's not. It took four years for the Civil War to end. So why did it take so long? Well, there are a couple of Southern advantages as well. Um, one of the main Southern advantages is motive. The, 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 if you go back and look at any war, and the Civil War is no different, people fight for different reasons. Um, Some people fought in the South Civil War to protect slavery, yes. Some people fought for adventure. Some people fought um, for many different reasons. But if you would have went and asked Johnny Reb, the average Confederate soldier, why are you fighting in this war? The average, the most common response would be, because I'm defending my country. 
Because here's the reality. The Union is attacking the South. This is a, they called it a war of Northern aggression. So many people in the South, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, almost a million men sign up and fight in the South, and the majority of them, more than half, have never owned a slave in their life. They are simply fighting because they are defending their farms, they're defending their turf. So one of the major advantages is most of the wars fall in the South, and it's a major like home field advantage for the Southern soldiers. And it's for generals like Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, many other generals, it's much easier to defend than it is to attack. So much like the Revolutionary War, Washington didn't have to win the Revolutionary War. He just had to not lose it. The onus was on Great Britain to end the war, win, and defeat Washington. Big difference, okay? Then Washington winning the Revolution versus just not losing it. So, and that's kind of the same thing that's going on here is the South doesn't necessarily have to win the Civil War. They just have to avoid defeat, and that's a huge difference. And the North has to conquer the South, which is a much harder task. So that's one major advantage. And the other advantage that the South has is, turns out to be, is leadership when it comes to generals, when it comes to officers. Now, at the beginning of the Civil War, um, both sides think they have the advantage here. The Civil War itself proves the South to be more correct than the North. Now, the key to all this is Virginia. Virginia is not one of the first seven states to leave the Union. They do not secede until after the Battle of Fort Sumter, once the Civil War begins. And a lot of people realize that a lot of the best soldiers, the best leaders, generals, come from the state of Virginia. So when Lincoln takes office, March 4th, the Civil War doesn't start until April 12th. It's about six weeks. What he's really trying to do is keep Virginia in the, in the Union because he knows this will be a much shorter war if Virginia stays in the Union because Virginia has the most amount of soldiers. Virginia also has a lot of the best capable leaders that come from West Point, the military college. And Robert E. Lee is a glaring example of that. Lee was offered command of both the Union and Confederate armies, and he does not choose the Confederate army until Virginia leaves the Union. Once Virginia secedes, Lee goes to the South and joins the Confederacy. So the North, um, they have, at the beginning of the war, George Bernard McClellan, General McClellan, is seen as the younger version of Lee. By the time the Civil War comes, Lee has been a 32-year veteran of the U.S. military, and he's considered, if not the best, one of the brightest that has ever been produced by West Point. And McClellan, or Mac as he's called, is the younger version of Lee. He is considered one of the best, if not the best, that was ever produced by West Point. But he's a lot younger than Lee is. Okay. Now, as the war progresses, the South leadership proves to be a lot more effective than North leadership, at least till the end of the war. Uh, Grant is Lincoln's seventh commander of the Army of the Potomac, the main Union army in the East. And Grant is only in charge of the last year of a four-year war. Okay, So that kind of levels the playing field when Grant takes control. There were six people, uh, McClellan, same person twice, that failed in the leadership role of the Army of, of the Potomac, the main Union army, before Grant takes over. So, so those are the main advantages. And if you add it all up, it takes about four years, almost to the day, and kills about 2% of the population. About 620,000 men died during the Civil War. We're up to number 17, which is Lincoln's most famous speech, his Gettysburg Address. It's also probably one of his shortest speeches ever given 
It's about 245 words total. Now, keep in mind, um, this was given November 19th of 1863. If you remember, the Battle of Gettysburg was fought July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1863. So this is about a little more than five months after the Battle of Gettysburg. Battle of Gettysburg is still the deadliest battle in U.S. military history. Not only the Civil War, more men died in those three days at Gettysburg than any other single battle in U.S. history, not just the Civil War, but any American war from the Revolution all the way through today. So there's a lot of people that die at Gettysburg. It is horrific, those three days. And Gettysburg was a major and decisive Union victory. Unlike Antietam, it's not a tactical draw that's good enough. It is a Union victory. Um, Gettysburg, up until the summer of 63, Gettysburg comes to a head July 3rd of 63, and out west, Vicksburg comes to a head almost the exact same day in 63, which is another major Union victory out west. Those two, Gettysburg and Vicksburg, are considered the key turning points because up in, from beginning of the war, 61, until the middle of the war, 63, the South is winning the Civil War, and it's not really that close. And then the tide turns. So Gettysburg is the game changer in the East. And the East is the main veteran armies, the, the varsity teams, which is the Army of Potomac, the Union Army, and the Army of Northern Virginia, or Lee's Confederate Army. So this is Gettysburg was Lee's big mistake. He loses this battle, and it's the second and final time that he inv- tried to invade the North. So they go back together there. They all get back together. They go back to Gettysburg. And the reason they're there five and a half months after the battle, this is like ground zero. It's like going back to, to World Trade Center, ground zero, five and a half months or months after 9-11. So emotions are very high. A lot of people have been killed in this battle. And they're there to take a small part of that battlefield and dedicate it as a national cemetery. It's called the Gettysburg National Cemetery. And that's why they're there. There's about a dozen speakers that day. Uh, Lincoln is one of the speakers, but he's not the only one. The keynote speaker is a gentleman by the name of Edward, Edward Everett. And the style of that day, this is the 1860s oration, is to talk for one to two hours. So most of the people there talk at least a half hour, usually about an hour. Edward Everett, the, the, the keynote speaker, his speech was about two hours long. Okay, So Lincoln's speech is obviously important. He's president of the United States. But when he gets there, he gets up in front of the crowd there that day. His speech is about two and a half minutes. It's very short speech, and you know very well, four score and seven years ago, the Gettysburg Address is what he's talking about here. That's a smart way of saying 87 years ago, which he's referring to the Declaration of Independence, okay, Thomas Jefferson's. Um, so his Gettysburg Address that day was the shortest speech there by far, not even close. In fact, we have no pictures of Lincoln delivering the Gettysburg Address because it's so short. Like, by the time they realize he's done and leaving the stage, they snap a picture, but he's already kind of leaving the stage. So if you see any images of Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address, they're usually drawings because there is no picture of him giving the address because it was so short. But its brevity turns out to be its genius. Because, like, Edward Everett, his speech, two hours long, there was a few thousand people there that day, and there was not loudspeakers and all that stuff. So other than probably several hundred up front, a lot of people probably couldn't hear him. So Lincoln, instead of speaking to several hundred people or maybe even a couple thousand people that happened to be there that day, Lincoln's speech is so short that it was able to be printed and reprinted all throughout newspapers in the North. So its brevity turns out to be its genius, and to this day it's considered 
if not the best, one of the best presidential speeches ever given. So what's at the heart of his speech? Keep in mind, they're there November 19th, 1863. The war started April 12th, 1861, two and a half years ago. So you're looking at 20-some months, a war that everybody thought would be over in less than three months is now entering its third year. Let's just say that a lot of people, especially in the North, are kind of sick of war. It's taking way too long, it's killing way too many people on both sides, and it's costing way too much money. The first income tax in U.S. history was instituted during the Civil War by Lincoln's administration. Now, after the Civil War goes away, it's not the same income tax you pay today, but that was the first time to give you an idea how much this war cost. The war has become kind of unpopular, especially with Union mothers who are losing so many thousands of their sons. So when Lincoln goes there, he's no fool. He understands that the war is not the most popular. And there's even whispers, people starting to say, uh, let them go. They call it negotiate peace, which is a fancy way of saying, let the South go. Let the Confederacy go. We don't need them. We'll be just fine without them. So when Lincoln goes to the podium that day, he addresses these issues. And the heart of the Gettysburg Address, he's calling on everybody to stay the course and to keep fighting, which is not exactly what everybody wants to hear. Uh, Here's the key of what he says right here. This is the heart of the Gettysburg Address. Quote, It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us. That task is winning the Civil War. That from these honored dead, and keep in mind when he says this, there's thousands of fresh graves. You can see mounds out there. They're on a little platform on a hill overlooking cemetery and there's thousands of dead bodies out there and you can still see the mounds they're fresh that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion what he's saying is uh, we came here to dedicate this cemetery and it's the right thing to do but it can't be done because the men who fought and died here have already done that so instead of doing that what we should be doing is rededicating ourselves back to the original cause that these guys out here who just died, your sons, your fathers, your brothers, your uncles, these guys out here who gave their life, if we don't do this, then what did they die for is what he's saying. They gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall have not died in vain. What he's saying is if we give up now, if we negotiate a peace, let the South go, then why did all these guys, why did your dad, why did your brother, why did your uncle, why have they, why is your sons, why have they been sacrificed? They've died for nothing. If you want to honor your, your fallen countrymen, the way to do that is finish the job. And according to Lincoln, that job is winning the Civil War. So what he says is, we came here to dedicate the cemetery, which is the right thing to do, but it can't be done because the guys who already fought here have already dedicated it. And what we really should be doing is rededicating ourselves back to winning the war. That's the heart of the Gettysburg Address. It's not exactly the most popular, especially if you're a union mom who's lost two or three of your sons. It's probably not what you want to hear. What that means is Lincoln is for continuing the war. But the speech combined with victories on the battlefield, like at Gettysburg, Vicksburg, and after start to turn the tide with victories in the field and Lincoln's speech being printed and reprinted, it starts to turn the mood of the war in the North and support starts to grow for it again. And that's really the heart of the Gettysburg Address. All right, the second Lincoln speech we're talking about is his second inaugural address, 
which he delivers March 4th, 1865. So Lincoln has to get reelected during the Civil War. In November of 64, he defeats his former general, George Bernard McClellan, to win the presidency for a second time. It follows the Battle of Atlanta. When Atlanta falls, McClellan's hopes of the presidency go with it. So Lincoln is inaugurated. So where are we? March 4th, 1865, when Lincoln strides to the podium in Washington, D.C. that day. Where we're at in the war is it's not over yet, but the competitive phase is. Everybody knows who's going to win, who's going to lose the war. The war plays out by April 9th. So about five weeks away, they don't know that. But by this point, the South can no longer continue resupplying itself. All hopes of Confederate victory are basically dashed unless you're delusional at this point. So when Lincoln goes to the podium in Washington, March 4th, 1865, he could have said just about anything because not only is he the president, he is now going to be the winning president of the Civil War and everybody knows it. Now, if you remember what brought about the Civil War, what triggered it was Lincoln's election. And even before he took office, states started to leave the Union. So Lincoln's entire presidency has been controversial up to this point. There's many people, especially in the South, but even in the North, who dislike Lincoln strongly. They blame him for the breakup of the United States and the Civil War, which is killing a large percentage of the population. So when Lincoln strides to the podium, he is no longer the president who calls the Civil War. He is now going to be the guy who wins the Civil War, and everyone knows it. So whatever he says that day, he probably would have got applause. He probably would have got agreement out of the North because they know they're going to win the war. So the key is, what does he say that day? His speech is pretty long, a lot longer than the Gettysburg Address. But here's basically the heart, the big, the big part you got to remember is, quote, with malice towards none, with charity for all. Now, what does that mean, malice? Malice means, like, bad or bad intentions, hatred. And charity is, like, good, good intentions or help. So when Lincoln says, with malice towards none, the none he's talking about is the South. He says, with malice towards none, that means don't hate the South. With charity for all, the all Who needs the help the most? The South. Most of the Civil War was fought in the South. It devastated not only the population, the male population, it devastated many of the communities, the towns, the cities, the buildings, the infrastructure, the bridges, the telegraphs, the railroads, the food supply, the South, the Southern economy is in shambles. Slavery is over and everybody knows it. He already made that clear with the Emancipation Proclamation. Just got to figure out the rest. So the South is in need of help. So when he says, with malice towards none, with charity for all, what he's really saying is, don't blame the South for the Civil War. Don't hate the South. Instead, help the South. They're your countrymen. They need help. Now, why is this key? Because Lincoln doesn't live but about six weeks after his inauguration. The Civil War comes to a close when Robert E. Lee surrenders to U.S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th. Lincoln is shot on April the 14th, five days later, and dies Saturday, April the 15th, early in the morning. So what that means is Lincoln does not live long enough to help rebuild the South. That period's called Reconstruction, where we're headed next, and Lincoln doesn't live to see that period. So we don't really know 100% what Lincoln would have done, but judging by this speech, he was going to help the South, not blame the South, not punish the South. And when Lincoln's gone, what winds up happening is the radical Republicans in Congress do exactly the opposite. The South is punished for for many years following the Civil War. 
So when John Wilkes Booth, a Southern sympathizer, kills Lincoln, what he really does is kill the one person who's been there from the beginning, the one person who has enough political muscle now to help the South. He's the president who wins the Civil War. And obviously, if you look at the speech, he is going to help the South. He's the one person in the federal government who could do this, and he's no longer there. So the South does not receive help after the Civil War. That period is called Reconstruction. We'll get into it later. And then I purposely saved Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation for last, even though it doesn't come last. The reason for that is because of its power. Lincoln gives this speech a few days after the Battle of Antietam. If you remember, Antietam was the first major battle fought on Union soil. It's in Maryland, not far from D.C. It's the first time Lee doesn't win. Technically, it's a draw, but Lincoln takes it as enough of victory to, to issue the speech. Uh, he already has a speech written. By the summer of 62, Lincoln has decided that he is not going to allow slavery to exist anywhere in the United States, not just out west, but in the south as well. So he's decided by the summer of 62, he's already written the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, what is he waiting for? Good news. Lincoln needs victories. The first year of the war has been nothing but defeats for Lincoln. Very few victories, very little good news. And if Lincoln, a war that's now in its second year, and the South is winning, if Lincoln tries to free the slaves after yet another defeat, he'll look like a desperate fool at the end of his desperate rope. So therefore, he needs to, he needs to play this hand from position of power. So he's really waiting for good news. And even though this technically is a draw, it's the first time the South, under Robert E. Lee, attacks the North, and they don't win, and they go back. So Lincoln says, good enough for me. And after this battle, he issues the Emancipation Proclamation. And it goes into this in September of 62, and he says it will go into effect January 1st of 1863. So emancipate means to free, and the proclamation means the president's proclaiming freedom. So here's the catch. The Emancipation Proclamation frees zero slaves January 1st, 1863. The reason for that is it only applies to the southern states in rebellion. So Lincoln frees all the southern slaves, but no slaves that are held in the north. At this point, there's four border states that hold slaves, and none of those slaves are freed because the Emancipation Proclamation only applies to the states in rebellion or the southern states. And out of those southern states, there's 11 of them now, including Virginia. Out of those southern states, none of them are following Mr. Lincoln's directives. They all have formed their own country, the Confederate States of America. So technically, January 1st, 1863, nobody is freed instantly. So why is this such a masterpiece? The Emancipation Proclamation does several things. First, unlike King George III during the Revolution, this keeps it a civil war. While Lincoln issues this proclamation, there are Confederate agents in London with signed contracts from private shippers to openly support the Confederacy. England is going to start selling weapons to the Confederacy. All they need is official recognition of their government. And when Lincoln issues this, overnight, that becomes impossible. Because if you recall, England was more responsible for transporting slaves out of Africa all across the world than any other country. By this point, not only have, has England banned the slave trade, they've also banned the institution of slavery itself and have for a while. So England, a non-slaveholding country, cannot support the Confederacy, a slaveholding country, at war with a non-slaveholding country, if the war is about slavery, they can't do it. It'd be like the United States of America today, a democratic nation, supporting a communist nation at war with another democratic nation if the war was about systems of government. You just can't do it. 
it, it goes against everything that you stand for. So and if you remember, for the first two years, Lincoln's only stated war goal is to keep the Union together, preserve the Union. London can and is going to support the South as long as it's about keeping the Union together. But as soon as you add emancipation or abolition, the end of slavery to it, London cannot do that. So that means the Confederacy will have to fight for itself and not get English support or any European support. So Lincoln was able to do what King George III could not do during the Revolution. He kept it a civil war instead of it escalating into a world war, which would have greatly enhanced the Confederate chance of winning. Secondly, the proclamation encourages Southern slaves to run away. Southern slaves have been helping the South, the Confederacy, with their war effort from day one by making supplies, by tending the crops in the field. They're a major part of the Southern War production. So before the Emancipation Proclamation, not many slaves ran away to fight for the North is because at the beginning of the war, it was just about preserving the Union, the same Union which you were a slave in. And if the North won in 61 or 62, it'd still be about preserving the Union and keeping slavery in the South. So not many slaves were willing to run away and risk their lives to do so in order to keep a union together where they're still slaves. As soon as you add emancipation to it, the southern slaves start to run away at a much higher rate because now they're willing to fight and die and risk their lives getting there to fight for the North if the war is now about not just preserving the Union, but preserving the Union and ending the institution of slavery where they will be and everybody they know and love will be free. The proclamation does several things. But ironically enough, the one thing it does not do on January 1st, 1863, is free any slaves. No slaves are freed. But what Lincoln really does is he adds slavery to the war goals. So in 61 and 62, the South could have surrendered and negotiated a way to keep their slaves at least temporarily. Starting in 63, Lincoln puts down the gauntlet and says this war is not only about preserving the Union, it's also about the institution of slavery. So the only way the South can keep their slaves after the proclamation goes into effect is to win the war. That's basically what he's telling them. So when it comes into the Civil War and the South loses, everybody knows slavery is dead. The 13th Amendment is not ratified until December of 65. The war ends in April of 65, so it takes eight months. But everybody knows when the South loses that slavery is numbered. The days of having slaves are numbered in the United States, and that's because of Lincoln's very famous Emancipation Proclamation. All right, the last thing on Lincoln is he suspends the writ of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is a Latin term. It's a legal term, and basically it's one of those things you don't know anything about until you get arrested. It's the legal expression, the writ of habeas corpus, it literally means head and body. What it means is the government can't just arrest you, put you in jail, and never bring you in front of a judge and tell you why you were arrested, what the charges are, and give you a trial or anything like that. It's one of those things nobody really even thinks about until you get arrested. Then you are all about habeas corpus because you want to appear before a judge, have an arraignment, get a bail, whatever it is. So what that means, Lincoln, during the Civil War, suspends the writ of habeas corpus. So if you're a pure constitutionist, this offends you. Many people in the North believe this is too much power for the President of the United States. So what this means is people in the North were arrested, put in jail, and never appeared before a judge for months or even years during the Civil War by Lincoln's administration, and it did happen. Now, who are they targeting? Primarily journalists. Journalists, newspaper editors could reach the largest audiences. Up until the Civil War starts, up until Sumter, there was many articles in the North for and against war with the South. But once people start to die, 
once the war starts proper after Fort Sumter and really after Bull Run, where, where people start to die on both sides, what Lincoln is effectively saying is shut your mouth and support the Union war effort. What the writ of habeas corpus did was allow Lincoln's government to arrest and detain anybody that hurt the war effort once the war starts. And the purpose for this is to consolidate the Union war effort instead of having dissenting voices. So it's a direct violation of the First Amendment, absolutely. But Lincoln can do it, and he sets a precedent by expanding the presidential powers because of time of emergency, and Civil War qualifies as a time of emergency. Just like Woodrow Wilson will go on in the future during World War One to pass the Espionage Act, which allows the government to arrest people who are hurting the war effort, who are speaking out against the war, mainly socialists. It also allows FDR during World War II to detain, it's called internment, Japanese internment. Over 100,000 Japanese Americans were locked up on the West Coast following Pearl Harbor in the spring of 42. And Lincoln sets this precedence with the suspension of habeas corpus. Those are the main Lincoln issues that you have to be aware of. And we will pick up tomorrow with Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Ulysses Grant, Sherman, Jeff Davis, and Lincoln, the key leaders of the Civil War. And then we'll roll into the Civil War proper tomorrow as well. I hope you enjoyed and got something out of this. Feel free to listen and re-listen if you need to. And I will be back tomorrow. See you next time around the corner. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Be sure to hit that like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss another episode. See you next time. I am Blaine Jaffe, the voice of the intro and exit for Mr. Cornwell's Corner. Thank you for listening.